Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and I am joined on Zoom again today, firstly by Sue Grimmett. Hey, Sue. Hey, great to be back. And uh, Peter Cat joins us as well. Hey, Peter. G'day. And we are very excited today uh, to share what is a very necessary conversation. Um, it's an area we've covered or explored a few times before in different ways on the podcast. Uh, and probably uh, among the most prevalent um, church issues of the last decade or two in particular in terms of, um, I guess, the notoriety it has had, which is uh, entirely surrounding the church's uh, embrace and acceptance of um, of rainbow Christians, of, of people of all um, sexual and gender diversity. Uh, and we are joined today to have this conversation by the Reverend Dr. Wayne Brighton, who is the rector of the Holy Covenant Anglican Church. He has recently written a piece called An Evangelical's Journey from Welcoming to Inclusion on this topic, which we will be exploring with him. Uh, Wayne, thank you so much for, for making time to join us. Yes, uh, thank you so much, Dom. It's uh, great to, to join such a, such a great podcast. Oh, well, we're very, very excited to have you here. Um, look, th- this particular conversation... Uh, I suppose the context of, of it in the Anglican Church as well as the wider church is probably worth setting uh, because it's been an interesting year in Australia um, on this particular matter. For, for those maybe based interstate who missed this story, there was a, a Christian school in Brisbane not that long ago that had a, a contract basically um, saying that they upheld Christian values and would not uh, allow LGBTIQ plus students to be um, enrolled at the college. And that was obviously a big news story. The religious discrimination bill um, has been a big talking point throughout 2022 uh, as well um, to, to date. Uh, but I'll, I might start with a question to you, Peter, just in terms of the context, both from a wider societal point of view and also particularly in the Anglican church, where do things sit on this topic at the moment? Where do things sit at the moment on this topic? That's a really good question. Uh, and if I answer that fully, we won't have much time to talk to Wayne. Um, <laughs> we're in the midst of a, a, a piece of social evolution, um, which is the equivalence is what happened 100 years ago when women wanted to vote and there was a, a opening up of the role of women in society and a change in the understanding of it was the beginning of the understanding, a change of understanding of what gender is and what gender confines us to and how we define gender. And that um, social evolution has been taking place, I think, for the whole of the last century and a bit more. And part of that is, has been our understanding of gender, which up till now has been a binary understanding and sexuality, which has been a binary understanding of sexuality. And in this podcast, we often talk about how binaries limit us and don't actually reflect reality. And so we are in the process of uh, exploring a richer view of humanity. And there's always resistance to change. And often it's the religious people who play a role in that uh, resistance and, and it can be a positive role and it means that the rest of us have to think uh, hard about what's happening against what used to be. Um, I think the there's been, a, in our church, there's been a, a long-term clash and we haven't really ever discussed the underlying issue, which is really how we understand the role of the Bible, what place the Bible has in life of 
the church and how we interpret the Bible. And so we've been fighting for the last 50 years or so a number of sort of issues at a more surface level without ever getting to the issue that lies behind it. And so in our church, we've we've grappled with the remarriage of divorcees, the admission of children to communion, which a lot of people don't realise was actually part of the same issue, actually deals with what it is to be human and make decisions and when you have the capacity to exercise that sort of right. We've been through the ordination of women and uh, the place of rainbow people has become, if you like, the, in some senses the last stand for many uh, people who basically lost the other battles. Underneath there is uh, a need for us to explore how in the faith we use the Bible, how we interpret the Bible, how we uh, measure our practice against uh, things like science, sociology, how we incorporate knowledge from other places. So I think that's sort of the background as I see it. Mm. And, and I might um, throw this to, to you, Sue, just for those who don't uh, maybe have an up-to-date uh, understanding of the context of the Anglican position on this, um, at least, uh, and obviously it will vary uh, in location by location. Um, but same-sex blessings uh, have been, a, I guess, a big talking point of late, and that is that is where things are. Obviously, the law of the land in Australia is same-sex marriage is legal. In the Anglican Church, in at least the Brisbane Diocese, same-sex blessings, that, that has been uh, approved. Is that where things currently sit? Oh, yeah. Look, there was the findings of the appellate tribunal that, that basically said there was no barrier to blessing um, the marriages of people of the same gender, uh, same and... Because of that, really the question that's facing us is an acknowledgement that many people see this issue differently, that many people um, have a different stance on it in the church, and yet how do we go on as one church? How do we live together? How do we worship together? How do we be together in times when the landscape is changing and when our own church, we will find people on the same pew having um, different views to us? So uh, that is sort of part of the part of the landscape that we are navigating. And uh, this is perhaps a, a good time to bring Wayne into the, the conversation now with us as well, because Wayne, the piece you did write um, looked at your own journey. I guess how you have shifted your viewpoint um, on this particular matter. Can you just tell us a, a little bit about that journey for you? Um, sure. Look, the tradition that I've been a part of is within evangelicalism. And certainly what I've been exploring is that evangelicalism is a broad tent. Um, here in Australia, it's often dominated by um, one particular group. Uh, but even within that, that world, there's a variety of perspectives. Uh, and so for me, it's been a journey from trying to understand how evangelicalism is changing and has changed. And so as an evangelical, it's been um, working with rainbow Christians, trying to understand um, how they sit within the church. Uh, and so I've been moving from a position of, of welcoming to a position that's strongly affirming. Mm. Um, and that's largely come through 
um, understanding stories, uh, thinking about theology and, and trying to get some perspective on where evangelicalism has been and where it might be going in the future. You do talk about the, I guess, the three different perspectives, uh, exclusive, welcoming and inclusive uh, on the, the this particular matter, um, which might be helpful to, to uh, I guess, name some of, of the perspectives that are held. Can you just talk a little bit about each of those three um, individual perspectives? Sure. Look, uh, I think to pick up Peter's point, uh, one of the big conversations um, is around divine order. And so I think these three perspectives have quite a different take upon how God sits within creation and how humanity relates to God. Um, The the affirming position, the inclusive position, is a position of, uh, of equality. That's the fundamental bedrock. People are the same. Um, And so from that point of view, um, welcoming rainbow Christians is the call upon everybody and to put barriers and uh, and to discriminate uh, around marriage and sexuality um, is to be seen as a way of you're actually undermining what God wants to do in the kingdom of God. So to harm people, uh, to hurt people, uh, these are inconsistent with Christian behaviour. So that's broadly the affirming position. Uh, At at the other extreme, uh, at the other end of the perspective, might be the exclusive position. Uh, The way I see that is is that's often the group that talks loudest and longest about traditional patterns of biblical behaviour. And very often that does not see, it, it sees order, Uh, in very strong binary categories, uh, that God has a position, has a a way of ordering creation, Uh, and same-sex attraction and behaviour does not fit within that established vision of order. Um, And so people with those um, who sit beyond the binary are effectively excluded from the Christian community. It's kind of where so many gender and sexually diverse people what they've experienced in the church, you know, for the last 50 or 60 years, if not longer. The welcoming position is somewhat uh, a newer position. It kind of has become more popular among evangelicals over the last 30 years or so. It sits between those two things. It it says, look, we're all sinners in the eyes of God. Um, It says, look, um, People who are gender and sexually diverse are welcome to come along and be a part of our community. Uh, However, the message is don't be too gay. Uh, Don't be in a relationship. Uh, You've got to repent. Um, And generally, they're the strongest people supporting um, celibacy. Uh, And this requirement of, you know, part of your call as a gay person is is not necessarily to be straight, but to be celibate. Mm. And so, look, um, that's where a lot of evangelicals sit. That's where I sat. Um, And I think my journey has been recognising that, look, that's a really damaging place to sit. It's convenient for me as a cis white male to sit in that spot, Um, but it's totally damaging for any rainbow Christian to be a part of that community. 
Mm. So the way I see it is welcoming is a way of avoiding the conflict that comes with being exclusive. Um, it's a way of avoiding conflict um, for cis white people. Um, but it's a pretty toxic place when you actually, for rainbow Christians to sit. Yeah. You know, the, the, there was something you touched on beautifully all through your piece. Uh, and I think you sum it up best maybe in, in this sentence here where you write, I witnessed the trauma of discussion where what was abstract to one person was a matter of intimate identity to another. And that this idea that the welcoming perspective is, you know, something that maybe those who, who have sat in it and, and it has often been a loving step forward for them in their theology, but those who have sat in it have, it's something maybe they think about if at all for 20 minutes a week, um, which is directly impacting the daily lived experience of, of another. I, I'm wondering if you can maybe share a little bit about how you came to that realization and, and what it was that, that shifted you from the welcoming position to the, the inclusive position. Look, uh, lots of my evangelical friends, you know, talk a lot about scripture, uh, but they don't talk about experience. You know, within their theological lens, experience uh, is screened out. Um, and the reality is when you sit with rainbow Christians, um, marriage is not an abstract issue. It's a matter of their life. Uh, and their capacity to thrive as people, to have relationships uh, marked with joy and intimacy, uh, a relationship uh, that's really substantial. Uh, and what I hear in talking with Rainbow Christians is very often an experience of pain uh, because they get separated. Um, they've experienced rejection. Uh, and this reality of denial, that somehow they are being denied something which everyone else can have. Um, and it really hits when, when I talk to Rainbow Christians, you know, this, this element of celibacy kind of makes sense when you're in your 20s. But when I meet people in their 40s, 50s and 60s who are single and the pain of denial is extraordinary. You know, they've, they've done everything that's they've been asked to do by the church, uh, and yet they come home to an empty house. They come home, uh, their, their families often rejected them. Mm. Um, and quite often the level of violence that they experience is extraordinary. So they wear two masks. They, they feel like they have to wear a mask inside the church. And they wear a different mask outside as they seek relationships that are fulfilling. And just the level of violence is extraordinary. You know, a close friend uh, was, you know, just walking through Canberra, you know, through our cafe district, um, holding hands with another person. Uh, my friend is trans male. And someone just came up out of the blue and punched him in the stomach you know, and, and vilified him uh, for being trans in the middle of the street. And this stuff happens all the time. Uh, he gets assaulted regularly, if not verbally, then physically. Uh, and so many of the welcoming people just have no idea this violence happens uh, continually. 
uh, to people who are gender and sexually diverse. And, and unless you see that as part of the story, then marriage sits as an abstract thing. We can talk about doctrine. We can talk about ideas. But marriage hits people. You know, this is their capacity to flourish and to walk down our streets safely without being abused or beaten uh, or assaulted. It, it's really personal. And Christians, their level of violence uh, is extraordinary. You know, we may not beat people up physically with our fists, but the emotional abuse, the psychological abuse, the spiritual abuse is profound. And Christians who sit in the welcoming space are totally blind to this because rainbow Christians do not feel safe enough to tell them that this is their experience. Mm. Because to talk about it, is humiliating and shameful and quite often is to invite yet more abuse, you know, because the message so many Christians say, look, you're just looking too gay. You know, if you weren't that gay in church, this wouldn't happen to you. And, and for my friends, you know, they say, look, I just want to be known by the pronouns I've got. I just want to, I want to feel like if I'm in love with someone, I can hold hands with them at church, you know, that people in my community will value them as much as they, they value the next couple who holds hands. Mm. And welcoming churches don't do that. Yeah, it, it brings to mind, Wayne, a story um, from a few years ago where a friend of mine who uh, had come out to their, their community was having a coffee with their their pastor on a Sunday morning after church where their pastor was going through the Bible verses and the doctrine about sexuality and about, um, you know, why this person to honor God must remain celibate and all these sorts of things. And then the pastor went up and walked to his car and went home to have Sunday lunch with his wife and four children. Well, this friend got up to go back to his one bedroom flat by himself and I remember him reflecting on this and saying they they don't offer a livable solution. They they don't they just leave you there. They drop the bomb and then walk away back to their happy domestic lives that are entirely unavailable to you. I just wonder how much as a starting point actually thinking about not doctrine but experience um what what actually the doctrine that we're talking about leads to the experience of people's lives you know, how necessary it is to start there. Do you think, Peter, that's that's a, the, the place to, to start from a Christian perspective is actually with the love of someone's experience rather than particular verses? Um, well, yes. And uh, I think, I think the, the best way we do faith is actually reflection. So it's a dialogical approach. So it's, it, it means that we uh, honour experience and then we reflect on how the tradition, how our interpretation of scripture, because that, that's one of the things that we don't unpack enough is the fact that uh, the scriptures are subject to interpretation and we read, we read them and we respond often out of our biases or our cultural conditioning. And we've talked in the past about Returning the other cheek, which in our culture means to be meek and mild and to take it. And in the culture that Jesus spoke from, it means to be defiant. So 
you know, cultural conditioning affects the way we interpret scripture. And we, I think if we end up being dialogical rather than binary, um, then we end up in a much healthier space. And so for me, it's, it's really not about either or, it's about how we allow dialogue of lived experience to intersect with doctrine and scripture. And the thing is that scripture um, experience can actually uh, cause us to look to other parts of the scriptures for the affirmation we're needing or for the challenge we need. And so it, it's the experience helps us look at the scriptures in more depth. Mm. And it was, the, it was the lesson we learned during the uh, discussions about the ordination of women. We realised that you know, everybody had a scriptural verse that supported their view, and so we actually needed to import experience as uh, one of the dialogue partners. But I know many people who came to the conclusion that the ordination of women was good because even though for them it seemed to go against Scripture, they could see the fruits of the Spirit in the ministry of the women. And so experience, in the first instance, it was experience that challenged them and then they read the Scriptures in a different way and found Scripture to affirm what they could see as the, the dynamism of the spirit at work in people's lives. And I think we can go through the same process when it comes to the lived experience of rainbow people. In that, and this is, this is why the plebiscite actually worked in Australia, is that most people had a positive experience of rainbow people in relationships. And they did not have the lived experience of the sort of the boogeyman version, which was the children were going to be destroyed. These We saw lots of families that were really good for kids who were head, headed by rainbow people, um, and it wasn't the, the sort of... The, the kids were not suffering in the way that um, some people said they would. And so lived experience trumped but was really just bad theology. We need to remember there's a lot of bad theology and lived experience is one of the ways that we filter that out. Mm. That action reflection, that component, another way of saying that is, you know, Jesus said it every time he, he said by their fruit, you'll know them, you know, that that is actually action reflection um, at work, I really believe, you know, that we're seeing the fruit of it. And you think of your story that right. you just told, Dom, of, of, you know, what's what's the fruit of that experience of someone coming along and condemning um, your friend's lifestyle or telling them they just need to pray more and sending them off home alone and then going back to their family? That's actually, you know, the fruit of that is that they're sending someone out to be, you know, feel their, sh their aloneness more severely, their shame more strongly, and that they're not actually engaging with the experience of the other from their perspective of comfort and happiness with their needs of intimacy met um, they're not actually engaging in the way that Jesus calls us to engage in the life of the other and to to you know carry the pain of one another and um, you know I think if we can't learn to assess the fruits as we were being told 
um, then, then, and we stick to lines like, you know, you can trump out a line like hate the sin and love the sinner, you know, and, and that has zero understanding of the fruits of what you are saying, a zero understanding of the condemnation that you're dishing out with that mm-hmm. um, and the, of another human being and all that they and who they actually are in their deeper sense, you know. So how do we, and it's the way our faith is built, isn't it? It's the way everyone, wherever you are in the church, whatever expression of faith you are, you can't tell me that your faith isn't built in some way on your experience. You will be looking at your life. You'll have encountered Christ in some way in your life, in a way that is good and life-giving, and that you have found that to be true. Uh, and so how about we, we can actually lean into that idea of where is the fruit of the Spirit? Um, and as Peter said, you know, the plebiscite, that was, that was about us recognising where goodness could be found. Yeah. You know, I think it's probably worth mentioning at this point as well that we did um, explore some of the particular theology of this back in 2019 in a podcast with Chris Chabs. Uh, so you can look back through the archives if you want to hear us discuss, um, I suppose, the, the particularities of some of the verses that have often been thrown around in these conversations. Uh, if, you, if you haven't heard that episode, maybe it's um, worth going back there. But um, it, it is an interesting, uh, I suppose it's an interesting point to think about um the uh, the the role of of those or the experience of those who have held one perspective and then moved to another one because that has been a, a shift that has happened progressively over um, the you know recent years and and Wayne that's why I'm really interested in in your particular story because you write about this in the the piece that you that we've mentioned and how there was actually some fear involved for you as you moved in your perspective because of what those around you and your your sort of community who, who thought similarly to you at the time, what they might think, how they might view your shift in perspective. Can you can you talk a little bit about, I suppose, the the need that you felt to conform to that way of thinking and the fear about about leaving it? Sure. Look, I, I think what, what needs to be said up front is that within evangelicalism, there is a battle going on about the place of experience in our theological method. It's it's one thing to have an experience of God. It's another thing to pay attention to your experience in your life setting. Um, and I think what what happens within evangelicalism is you get taught not to reflect upon your experience, if that makes sense. So, um, and so what you end up with is this curious sense of blindness uh, within the tradition. Look, uh, people join when they come to faith, they join a group and those connections are really important, you know. Um, I, I noticed that at uni I had a close friend who went off, um, was studying biology at university, and the issue that came up for him was evolution in the church. Uh, does he... And it pulled him apart in the end. Um, So he ended up leaving the church because the church couldn't cope with his learning at university. He saw these two things were were, were different. Um, I might just come back to the question and stop rambling. Um, Look, for me, no one wants to be alone. You feel extremely vulnerable. Um, and unable to really um, be honest about your doubts and thoughts 
within a whole lot of evangelical circles. You might feel it in your soul that there is something wrong here with this position, but because your peers uh, don't appear to be thinking that, no one says in church, hey, look, I, I really have doubts about this position. You can raise that once with a minister, but once you do, you realise, look, they aren't going to consider me to help out in any of these roles. They're not going to trust me to lead a group. They're not going to trust me to be engaged. The reality is you get written out. My experience of evangelicalism is they eat their young. They pay, they make examples of people by nailing them to a cross. And the example is, you see that once, I'm not going to let that happen to me. You know, I, I was at college in Canada and Roy Clements came along to talk. He was a wonderful uh, New Testament lecturer based in Cambridge in the UK. Roy was a closeted gay man. Um, he did what closeted gay people do. You know, he was looking for intimacy in a range of places uh, and it came out. And the evangelical community made an example of him. You know, he was disinvited. Uh, he never came to Regent College ever again. Uh, word got out that he was gay um, and he was dead to the community. Uh, and without anyone ever paying any attention to Roy, you know, pastorally, what happened to him? Uh, he was he was made an example of. And as an evangelical, you see this happen time and time again. We eat our young. Um, they get made an example of. And you soon start to think, man, I don't want to end up in that position. As a minister, I see what happens. You know, it's, it, I'm, I'm rambling here and I hope there's something useful you can use. Oh, Wayne, the, the On The Way podcast is 90% rambling. You, you're, you're, with, uh, you're with fellow ramblers. <laughs> Look, I, 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 I did a, um, several years ago, the diocese did a study. Uh, we were asked to do a study on same-sex relationships leading into the plebiscite, and I put that together. And you realise once there is a line and once you step over it, you are dead to that community. And it's a case of um, I put together these studies and you go to clergy conference and you're sitting there in clergy conference and you notice a change. Who will talk to you and who will be seen with you in public mm. and who won't be? Uh, who do you get invited to hang out with when the session is done over uh coffee or beers afterwards and who who you're not invited to hang out with and so that's been my experience within the evangelical world they make an example of you to be an example to others be careful don't step over this line or you will be excluded um and that's just the way it works as a way of enforcing those internal uh, boundaries and dynamics. And yet I know there are people who've come up to me 
quietly, you know, they'll get on the phone and they'll say, hey, look, you know, I'm really bothered about um, I have kids in my church, I have kids in my school, I don't know what to do um, because they know where that line is. And if they are seen in public with someone who's affirming, it's the end of their ministry. They fear it will be the end of their ministry. They fear it will be the end of their significant relationships. They fear in a patronage system, it will be the end of whatever promotions they want. Mm. For me, it was the realisation that I cannot see another rainbow Christian go under the bus yeah. because of my cowardice, uh, because of my unwillingness to, to think, my unwillingness to no longer be silent. I cannot see rainbow Christians go under the bus. And if that means that's the end of my career, if that means that's the end of my ministry, if that means that's the end of my influence in the diocese. Uh, uh, Jesus said, no, no servants greater than their master. This is what authorities like that did to him. This is what they will do to me. That's just par for the course. And the tragedy of all that, apart from the fear that it generates, the tragedy of all that is that we also have a whole lot of people who are feeling that they are seeking to earnestly live into God's will. And I've had people say to me, it's like I have to resist my better nature. And they've used those words. And you think, gosh, there's, you know, how much that it's, it's, their, it's their best loving Christ-centred self that they are denying, trying because they feel that this church with its authority is telling them they must align with this way of thinking. And we're driving people against themselves and against God too, I believe, in that, in that spirit move of feeling compassion for the other and recognising the harm that we're doing um, and yet still denying their most humane response. And, and what the church is doing is these are gifted, spirit-filled Christians. Um, you know, my chair of parish council was a, a, a trans man. Um, there are many non-binary people uh, doing ministry in my church. Uh, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, they have tremendous gifts. Uh, and I think what we're actually in danger of is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We are... We are saying that this is a curse when it's actually a blessing. Uh, and we are denying people their God-given place mm -hmm. uh, and their ability to exercise and bless, be a blessing to our community mm -hmm. um, and to do what God has called them to do. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. to stand in the way of that and to actually destroy that is, I think, is a very fearful place to be. Yeah. To call something that God is doing, to call that less than godly is, is appalling. That sense of us as diverse peoples grafted into the family of God is lost and we become instead part of this horrible homogenising kind of cultural project instead. So people may feel that they are, you know, being part of the, the noble resistance 
against culture and the the tragedy is that I think actually what it is is participating in the some of the strongest forces of all which will homogenize everyone ask everyone to conform to a certain type which is generally masculine white heterosexual but you know that that is that pressure to conform and to just be you know moderately successful achieving fitting into capitalist systems you know all of that is is part of uh the cultural project that has been going on and and the church has just gone belly up but but actually proclaimed it to be part of our own project you know instead of the diverse people of god yeah and look evangelicalism does not collapse because you're inclusive you know um evangelicalism um i i think uh is really um uh as as you say has bought into positions that are deeply harmful to itself um as a tradition to to and this is where there is a battle going on within evangelicalism around what experience you listen to and which ones you exclude mm. uh, because people fear the change that is happening within evangelicalism mm. um and they wish to confine it and to and to control it um, so it's very much a power battle, uh, just as much as what women's ordination uh, was about, uh, that those some groups with power uh, are fearful of what will happen if other evangelicals think differently, um, if the church thinks differently. And so they, they buy into this myth of noble resistance uh, at a whole range of levels. Uh, without ever seeing where this thing came from and and where it goes, mm. I really like the fact, Wayne, that you're um, unmasking something here. Um, I think there are a lot of people in uh, the evangelical camp of the church who hold your view, and I actually think that the development of the welcoming position is an expression of that. That already people can't live with the uh, exclusive. Uh, manifestation so there's some sort of accommodation going on um, a few years ago at general synod um, we had we defeated a motion that was a, um, looking at apologizing to the rainbow community uh, and we had defeated it because um, it contained a bar that said we're sorry for the way we've treated you oh but by the way the only way you can express sexuality is in in a heterosexual marriage um, and so the motion got defeated. And the, the revelatory thing for me was that after uh, that motion was not put, so it wasn't, in the end, wasn't considered, um, the people who approached me to thank me for what I'd done to bring about the demise of that faux apology were uh, deeply ingrained evangelicals. Mm who sidled up to me quietly over morning tea or sent me a text message or an email in the next few days to thank me for their leaders, my leadership uh, on behalf of their rainbow friends. Hmm. So they, and they, yes, they didn't get up and speak to support what I was trying to do, but they obviously ended up being able to vote for it because we had electronic voting and it was done in secret. Um, but it just showed me the power of 
the conformity, uh, the, 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 the requirement to conform, to belong. And, and, and Peter, I think it's about self-censorship, you know. So, yeah. so within the movement, it's not so much an authority figure telling you, it's people self-censoring. So they yeah. choose to be silent. They, they choose not to think or engage. Uh, but they know deeply within their spirits that this yes. is harmful, um, that this is um, causing all kinds of grief, uh, and but they put their own well-being ahead of others, you know, which is what, what you do when you're silent. You, yes. It's a choice, and I think what I'm trying to do with this paper is to say, look, we can make other choices here, mm. um, but it will come at a cost. You know, there are people, but other Christians have paid the cost. It, it's a fraction of the cost of what happens to rainbow Christians themselves. Yes, and the self-censorship harms so many others because it keeps people silent and robs them of relationship to one another too. I know after we had um, some circles here talking about an inclusive perspective, they um, one lady came up to me and said, after listening to people share about their experiences honestly, um, said, you know, it's the first time in the church I've been able to talk about my gay son and his partner, even to tell people about him. I've felt like I haven't been able to able to speak about him and I'm so proud of them. And yet, you know, just that little piece of, you know, the, the small things of chatting over a cup of coffee to, to talk about her son and his partner had been cut off from her for decades. And this is the sort of the cost that our self-censorship can come at. Um, it robs people of one another. And I think, Suzanne, it does rob us of a, of a vision of, of what the gospel is, you know, is, uh, is, is the gospel good news for everyone and what lies at the core of the gospel? Uh, I, I find it incredibly frustrating in this conversation that love is at the heart of the gospel and yet so many of my evangelical peers would prefer to talk about hope. Uh, because they can't talk about love. Because if if you talk about love, you're going to talk about the gay issue. And uh, if you talk about that, then you become exclusive. Um, and people feel that hypocrisy within themselves. And so the self censorship really kicks in to a to a high level there. But the fact that evangelicals can't. Yeah, look, they, it, it's really tempting to think that they've got a monopoly on the gospel and what the gospel is. Uh, I, I think the real shame is that the inclusive perspective ha hasn't really been forthright enough to say, look, actually, guys, you have a really warped vision of the gospel and to go toe-to-toe -to -toe on this issue. No, the gospel is inclusive. Love is at its core. The time and time again, what's Jesus' final message, his final instruction? It's love one another. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. Love one another is the instruction. And that is the gospel. And yet we, we have a tradition which 
purports itself to be biblical and yet is failing to understand what is at the heart of its gospel. It's just appalling, this welcoming perspective. Yeah. And the harm it's doing to the mission of the church is just unbelievable. Um, there are so many people in the community now who have some relationship with people in the rainbow community that uh, making this the line in the sand, which is uh, sort of a publication that's been produced by certain parties as we approach General Synod, um, is making it really hard for us to do the work of evangelism, making it really, really tough because people can see the harm that's being done and that they shut down immediately to the idea that the church could be a good place to come. I'm finding it you know, every time, you know, things like the City Point um, debacle that we had up here uh, make it just so much harder to do our work. Um, I'm fortunate enough in that you know, I'm well known enough to be someone who stands on the other shore of those sort of issues. So for me, it does give me some extra opportunities to speak. But it, but it's still hard, Yaka, because people say, well, why have they got that view and you've got this view? You've got to, you've got to be always doing the apologetics and difference within the church. Um, you know, and... We we last last year off of Pride Sunday we had had a talking circle here at the cathedral and the subject was coming out as Christian to the Rainbow community <laughs> and just how hard it is for the Rainbow Christians mm. to admit that they're Christians in the Rainbow community because we've created such a sense of antagonism and hatred towards the church as a place of exclusion and toxicity and, and, and a destructive place, that rainbow Christians are fearful admitting that they're Christians mm. to the rainbow community. So, you know, here we've got these passionate Christians who can't even share with their, well, find it harder to share with, with their peers the good news of the gospel. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, and so you can imagine how much harder it is then to find a partner uh, in this community, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, who shares and values your values. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So, so from both worlds, um, yeah, rainbow Christians, boy, they they have it really, really difficult. And, and the headlines are so strident, aren't they, too? And, and, and most people, with good reasons, haven't dug deeper. You know, most people, there's a certain courage to that position, I think, to say, well, if your God is the kind of God who would exclude, condemn, judge my gay friend um, or myself, I don't want a part of that kind of God. I would prefer to get on with trying to love and accept and not condemn others. You know, and if that's the perception, you can understand uh, why people would say they don't want a part of the Christian faith. Hmm. So I, I suppose the the question that comes to mind for me uh, now, and it, it is a really it is a really big question, but I'm 
we're three people who think about this stuff a lot, so I feel like it's probably the right sort of time to ask a question like this, is what what is a potential pathway forward? Because, you know, this is not a new issue. This has been something, you know, as you mentioned um uh, all of you have mentioned it's the latest in the myth of noble resistance that you touched on there, Wayne, of holding back the tide of the slippery slope and all these other awful phrases that are thrown around. Um, but there is this divide, and this divide is largely, as you just mentioned there, Sue, what is killing um, the church or interest in the church? Because people aren't saying, I'm not interested in a message of inclusive love. People are saying, I am interested in a message of inclusive love, and that's why I don't want to be a part of your movement, um, which is pretty damning thing. So when we have this divide still, when there's, you know, a number of issues, the public perception based on the loudest voices, the fact that a number of the, the I guess, denominational expressions of Christianity uh, still have strong elements within them, if not dominant elements within them in many instances that hold these perspectives. What actually is a vision of a way we can move forward on this? I've got a view on that. Um, I think I think there's incredible hope, and the hope comes because we've got people like Wayne who are able to articulate their experience and brave enough to speak to it, and that will enable other people to do the same. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I think the fact that the welcoming position has developed is a sign that um, things are changing, uh, and. We've been doing some talking circles in the life of the diocese over the last couple of months. And in some of those circles, um, people who I thought were really quite conservative and uh, set in their position are actually asking for two things at once that they can't have. That is that they want a church that is biblical in commas, uh, their understanding of biblical, um, affirms marriage, binary gender, all those sort of things. And yet at the same time, they want to be able to provide a welcoming space for their gay friends. And I think the dissonance that that sets up uh, is a real gift because uh, you can't have both of those things. And the fact that they have relationships is going to draw them, I think, towards the inclusive perspective. I actually think, I actually think that this is these are the birth pangs of uh, something really exciting, uh, and that's the sense I got also when that uh, motion got defeated at General Synod last time. Um, it sometimes looks like it's impossible, and you know I've been advocating along these lines for nearly forty years, um, but I'm getting to the point where I think that in my lifetime, unless I die of COVID in the next couple of days, because uh, <laughs> I have had COVID for a week, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think in my lifetime I'm going to see, I'm going to see the change. And it, we, it, the same thing happened with the ordination of women. It looked like it was never going to get there. It really did. Um, and the, it was agonising. Uh, and then you, you hit the tipping point. And I, think, and I think Wayne's work is actually introducing the tipping point. Um, that there are other people who will say, yes, actually, Wayne's right. Because that's me. People will recognise. Because people, whether we resist uh, 
we might think that we can resist lived experience, but in the end, we can't. In the end, we cannot, we cannot resist our lived experience. And the reality is, if, if we're alone, nobody moves. But if you see a friend um, yeah. and there's a hand to hold, then, you know, the potential begins to emerge for change. Yeah. Um, and I think Peter's, Peter's right. Uh, there is a building process that needs to go on, you know, for evangelicals to imagine what does an inclusive evangelicalism look like that needs to be built. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means being able to articulate an inclusive understanding of the gospel, uh, an inclusive way of the church. Um, and that does mean coming to terms with a whole reform tradition um, that is harmful and hurtful. Um, th th this is a real struggle that's going on amongst Baptist churches, uh, amongst uh, Presbyterians within the Churches of Christ, and really within Pentecostalism. You know, there's a really big struggle going on within this movement, within all these movements, as to the capacity to imagine and to build a different future, particularly at the risk of exclusion. Um, the numbers are not equal. Um, inclusive evangelicals are a very small minority and the reality is they may well be excluded from the institutions that they've been a part of for a long time. So what does it mean to be an affirming network to have the courage and the imagination to create an affirming evangelicalism. Now, that's really the calling, I think, of God. Uh, how do we create this space so that others might join in? Yeah, yeah. and I think it's the joining that's that's the heart of it, isn't it? Because I, what excites me is a, a growing recognition of the the violent of capacity of colonizing powers in different expressions and how authority has been seated in different ways um, that are that are actually colonizing violent coercive um, and this means in the church as well so the powers that say you must not think this you must not be this you must um, you know subscribe to these certain viewpoints only and that seeks to control us is actually being recognized as violent and instead letting Christ speak through our lives and our communities in that way that, you know, that you, we talk about the joining, it's a radical joining that we celebrate in resurrection and at Pentecost, you know, that if you're going to see it, that new life poured forth in the church, it's actually in the joining, in the grafting in and trusting to the spirit that's arising that's not just about being inclusive of rainbow people, but it's being inclusive of all different cultures, um, all different, you know, like we need to be preferencing Aboriginal voices in our country, recognising the wisdom that we miss out when we exclude and when we've silenced some groups over others. So this radical joining um, and the spirit of diversity that's unleashed at Pentecost through the joining of the people of God um, in the body of Christ, that's an exciting vision. Yeah, it's, it's so funny within the Baptist church in New South Wales and the ACT, this is a real point of tension. It's a generational split. Um, the Baptist church has been um, doing a lot of church planting uh, and a lot of these newer churches, voila, they happen to be affirming in their perspective. The traditional leaders um, are 
And so this is the battle. To what extent do they put statements about traditional marriage into their statements of belief? Because they know that a fair chunk of these new church plants won't buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, because they are church plants that are engaging with younger people. So the tradition has this tension, you know, do they let, do they want these younger church plants filled with younger people and giving their movement a future? Or do they want to tie, tie themselves to powerful leaders uh, of existing churches that are ageing and may not be around in the next 20 years? Um, so that's, what we are seeing is, I think, these conflicts that are generational and institutional, um, which is why there's all this effort to have people silent. Well, Wayne, your piece is, uh, I think, a, a brilliant stimulus for many of these conversations. It is uh, titled An Evangelical's Journey from Welcoming to Inclusion. Where can people find this online if, they are, if they'd like to read it for themselves? <laughs> We'll, well publish it on the cathedral website. There we go. Yeah, that, that, that would be great. I've sent it around That'd to equal, equal voices. It's on my um, academia um, page, yep. um, so they can find it there. Like, I'd be happy to send anyone a copy. Mm. It's been really hard to get it published, you know, because it's not an academic paper. You know, it doesn't have any references. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's too long for things like the ABC, um, you know, their religion and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it doesn't fit anywhere, which is really sad because it, it highlights the problem we've got in theology that we're not paying attention to biography. We're not paying attention to people's experience. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, look, I'd be, be, be happy um, to send people a copy. I I just wonder, too, whether it might be worth saying something about um, that myth of noble resistance. It's something we've spoken about but not necessarily dug into. Mm. I don't know, Dom, if you wanted to unpack that a little more. Well, absolutely. We're in no rush here this morning, and uh, I I think it is one thing that I I did note down that it was worth looking at because it is... um, it is uncovering, I suppose, a, a movement. And you, you did talk about the fear earlier on, the fear that is underpinning the evangelical movement um, in many instances, and it's the fear of stepping out, the fear of being excluded. Uh, fear seems to be running the show, and fear is certainly behind the myth of noble resistance um, as well. Do you, do you just want to give a little bit of a background, maybe, Wayne, about um, the myth of noble resistance? Yeah, yeah sure. Look, I, I think... The, the idea of this, what, what I've called or identified as the myth of noble resistance is, is this idea that evangelicals are the victims uh, in a culture um, that we are called to confront, that the faithful position of a Christian is to stand against uh, the culture, to confront it, uh, and it's all constructed in a way which is back to front. Um, so we we it, it, it socializes us not to pay attention to our own fear and anxiety of diminishment in our culture. Uh, it taps into that fear at the same time to get people angry and defensive uh, to fight uh, against the culture, 
but at the same time to ignore perhaps why they feel that way. Um, and, and it changes this dynamic between who's the victim and who's the offender. You know, it gets us mm. feeling like we're always the victim of the, the liberal left media or we're the victim of the, the lefties in the church, you know, who just want to sell the gospel down the river. And it's a myth because it, it's not true. Uh, it's this story that we tell ourselves within evangelicalism. Uh, it's a story that we've been told and a story that we buy into without ever realising where it comes from, without ever realising what it's being used for. I, I, I noticed it when I was at college in Canada because it's the story you get people into a fight with. It's the story that you get people to rally around a flag. And ultimately, within evangelicalism, it's the story that comes out of the American South in the wake of slavery. It's the myth of the lost cause. And it's so embedded within evangelicalism because so much of evangelical thinking comes out from America. Uh, and it gets woe, it's a way of seeing the world and a way of engaging with faith that is so woven into our theology that people just don't see it. But it's deeply embedded within the experience of both slavery and segregation. Uh, and for me, I suppose I began to notice the parallels. So when I began to pay attention to the myth of what's called the lost cause within the American South. And where's the heartland of evangelicalism? Where are all the megachurches? It's the American South. Uh, and you begin to see these parallels uh, in these stories um, between the collapse of the South, the development of evangelicalism around the world, uh, and the same story they tell. We're, we're the victims here. We, we change the narrative. Um, and we think that it's for the good of those that we're actually persecuting, uh, which is profoundly, I, I can't begin to explain how perverse that is. Yeah. It's really important, isn't it, that we know what these deep histories and the the cultural embeddedness that we find ourselves in and what's pulling our strings you know what is actually um yanking on the fear button or the you know motivating us to the kind of um emotion that would cause us to pull the barriers up and you know we're we're invited to live in a way of, of love without fear um and yet we don't even recognize the sources of fear that are driving us sometimes yeah, it, it's really profound um, to actually have a tradition that's been built around fear uh, and to exclude experience. So it's really ironic. It, it lives on fear, which is an experience, yes. but it, at the same time it blinds you to its power and its effect uh, because you can't notice love. I, I meet so many evangelicals who say, you know, we are such a biblical church but my congregation struggles with love. We, we struggle to love each other and the violence 
the emotional and psychological and financial violence that happens within evangelical communities is astonishing. I meet so many leaders who have to have a time out because they are burnt because of what they've endured, the attacks they've endured from their fellow believers. Because the, the church, how can you have a church that struggles with love? It, it's, it, it's just when you realise that, uh, you kind of wonder what on earth are we doing within evangelical churches? That the, that's the one thing Jesus had told the guys, look, you've got one job to do. Love one another. And, and yet if we can't do that, what's the purpose of being biblical? I, I ask you, if we can't, if being biblical isn't helping you to love, then what else is going on? And if it's all about getting people scared, getting people angry, getting people um, afraid of each other and afraid that God hates you, it's, it's, what on earth are you doing? Yeah. And it reminds me of my, um, my youth in an evangelical kind of church. And, and I've only realized this in recent years in comparison, but how much of the language was militaristic and, you know, how often we'd hear about the, the spiritual armor of God and we'd hear about the sword and we'd hear about all these sorts of things. And I suppose it, it leads to an understanding of how somebody like a Donald Trump can be elected because here is this um, seemingly strong man who will fight back, uh, who will help us, you know, win back against this culture that's trying to sweep us away. And and I suppose with a narrative that strong and um, and that fundamental, it kind of makes sense how maybe people can overlook, uh, well, every single characteristic of a man like Donald Trump to vote for him, because it feels like this is the this is the savior we've waited for, who is strong enough and powerful enough to fight back on our behalf. Um, it's such an interesting way to view the world, isn't it? Yeah, it 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 it, it fills up churches. You know, you can fill up a church with a lot of fearful people. Um, and, you know, it, it gives a leader a lot of power if you're the one with the solution um, and you keep people worked up. Um, it, it's a wonderful, <sighs> but it's profoundly damaging and, and destroying and, and fearfully, ultimately, for, for, for the leader. Uh, I... I you know, I, I wish so many Christians would read a, a little bit of um, Frederick Douglass, uh, the great abolitionist, you know, who in his biography points out uh, he, he's a profoundly Christian man who wrote at the end of the, uh, the mid-19th century in the US. He was a former slave uh, and he calls out uh, American evangelicalism you know, in, in the most profound way possible. You know, you, you walk in a church on a Sunday and you think God forgives you um, and will overlook how you beat your slaves during the week, how you've raped their wives, how you've sold their children, and you've created a Christianity which insulates you as a slaveholder from seeing or experiencing any of that. Uh, somehow God doesn't see it and forgives you for it at the same time. Um, and this is what we do 
it's the level of the, the, the danger and the damage we do to rainbow Christians. Um, we are denying their humanity, uh, creating a second-class slave group, you know, because we're happy to have them do the flowers. We're happy to have them play music. We're happy to have them show up and take their money. Um, but we don't want them to be leaders. Uh, we don't want the, we don't want their, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Man. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's interesting sometimes to feel like you're a part of a conversation that, you know, in a hundred years will be when history is more clearly viewable in hindsight, how people will look back on a lot of this, to, but to feel like you, you can unmask some of it in the meantime while it's actually still going on and, and running the show is a, is a fascinating way to look at things. Okay. And for me, it's a point of grief, you know, when I, and a lot of shame, you know, I feel deeply ashamed at the number of Christians that I know who are gay, lesbian, trans, and I was silent. I I was blind to what they were experiencing, you know. I was silent when they experienced difficulties and I was not a friend when they needed one. And so when they go under the bus, you know, they have a conflict. They they look for intimacy and, and it the desire for intimacy unfolds in unhealthy ways because we as a church are preventing healthy ways for them to flourish. You know, if we say they can't marry, human intimacy will find a way. Um, and it's really hard when that comes out in an unhealthy way. Um, and then we have the temerity to judge them for it. When... when Yet when we deny them the right to marry, intimacy will, they will, rainbow Christians like anyone will find ways to bind their life to another, to find joy and pleasure and well-being. We are wired to do that. Um, and the denial of marriage is, that was at the heart of slavery. And I think this is what evangelicals don't get. You know, when you deny someone that fundamental human right to be with another person, it gives you tremendous control and power over their lives. And it forces the desire will come out in ways that will be harmful. And then to judge them because of that is it just compounds the harm. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, this is um, this is I suppose it feels like more of the start of a conversation than the end of a conversation, um, which uh, I imagine will be ongoing in many communities. It's probably also worth mentioning that we may have some listeners to this podcast who feel like they are in communities where they can't have these conversations, where there is fear, such as as what you've mentioned, Wayne. And so, if that does feel like you, and you'd like. Uh, to explore this or, or, or talk about this in a place that does feel uh, more safe, 
please do feel free to message us on the On The Way Facebook page on uh, on Facebook there. You can send a message through and um, and we can have a bit of a conversation with you and, and um, that will always be a safe place. If you don't feel like you have in your community a way, you can do that. Um, but this is an ongoing conversation and if anyone would, would like to get in touch for any reason around the podcast, um, please, please do because... I, I suppose I, I want to say, um, Sue and Peter, that to just drop this out there into whatever isolated communities people might be wrestling with these these things in from any perspective is, um, well, I feel, I feel like we need to at least make some mention that we're not just dropping a conversation into the ether and walking away, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, um, thank you so much, Wayne, for your time today. It's been a, a real gift to share this conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Tom, and uh, I Pleasure to um, to share this conversation with you too.